Hey, everybody, you are listening to A Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy. My name is Christian Serge, and I am, well, the dumb guy. And this is our co host, author, pastor, and soon to be Dr. Johnny Morrison, the smart guy. Uh, Christian, I have, before, I know that we need to introduce why we're doing and what we're doing with the podcast, but before we even get there, I do want to talk about the name of the podcast. Oh, come on. Smart guy, dumb guy. Because here's the thing. I think that it's it's a flattering title to me, mm-hmm. but I think I have, an, I have an idea for a different a different name, which is uh, cool well, guy, nerd guy. Because <laughs> I think that that actually better fits this situation. You, you're the cool guy, and I'm the nerd guy. Christian. I, I don't know. I, I think... Um, Every time I see you in a photograph on the Instagrams, you you are like the ultimate hipster. You got some hat that has a phrase on it that's like "do good to you know all people" or something that's like it's a long phrase. Be nice. <laughs> so that's a long phrase. <laughs> no, but I think well, I think it should be cool guy because and maybe I'm getting into stuff that's coming later. But I feel like it should be cool guy because. I might be a hipster with a wife who's a photographer, but you're an actual rock star, an actual documentary filmmaker who's you've been on ships that are like sinking. You've traveled to the Sudan. I think you've uh, you've stolen chickens from chicken farms illegally in the dead of night. Uh, I cannot claim that's true or false. (laughs) It's fair. Did I just commit perjury or something? Is that I think so. (laughs) I'm sorry. Cut. Cancel. I'm just saying that, you know, if we're thinking of other titles in the future, it could also mm-hmm. be cool guy and guy who reads too much. <laughs> well, here's why I like the title smart guy, dumb guy. And it is because, you know, back when I like with all this political unrest and racism and injustice and all this effort into, you know, everybody's staying home and just getting into the the deep of things, I realized that I have a lot of really just white privilege. I'm the, I'm the quintessential guy that was raised in, you know, like, um, you know, partly in, in small town, Utah and partly in Las Vegas. And, you know, my dad was a, was a dentist. And like, I remember he, one time I was eating some like nuts and pecans, this little nut mix. And, and he, uh, I ate one of these really large nuts and it had like this little brown shell. And, and I was like, dad, what is this called? This kind of tastes a little bitter, whatever. And he looked at me and he paused for a minute, uh, a second. And then he said, uh, that's and I said, Oh, and so I grew up in like, with racial, ter- like racist terms in my life, I grew up um, really not knowing that there was a struggle in that. Um, when I was 14, I met a guy named Efrain, and uh, we went to school, became best friends uh, out of high school. One day I call him and I was like, hey, how did you and that girl work out? And he's like, oh, um, her dad didn't want her to date somebody that's my color. And I had no idea. I didn't even realize that he wasn't white or he wasn't like me or that he didn't have the same uh, opportunities or that he faced things like that. So I don't know, dumb guy. I, I, I feel like sometimes I walk around this world just kind of dumb. I think I, dumb is a nice way of saying it. Cause I think that you're not alone in that. Like the, the conversations that you're talking about, 
are conversations that as because I mean I am also a white guy, uh, <laughs> raised in a middle class family. Uh, my my mom was not a dentist, but my mom's this is funny. My mom's dad was a dentist and an orthodontist, so we actually have, we have all this vocational lineage in common. And then my mom mm-hmm. sold dental insurance, so pretty pretty similar. But I think we exist in this world and embody uh, a kind of blind privilege to what you say, mm-hmm. and it makes us yeah. culturally dumb, culturally ignorant, and tragically culturally very dangerous because we're participating in systems, racialized systems and perpetuating those racialized systems or, or classist systems or misogynistic systems. And we don't receive at any moment in our lives, the training necessarily to deconstruct those systems that we might live differently. As I read through articles and, and my responses sometimes just around the people, they're like, Oh wow, that that's what you thought. And I go, Oh man, you're right. I, I, I didn't even realize that that was my response or has been my response. So that's why you're the smart guy. See, you just explained <laughs> it right there. You, uh, soon to have a PhD. Um, you're one, you're my favorite pastor, um, and a, a great author. I can't wait for your book to come out and I'm just happy that we're doing this. So each week and f- now for the next maybe uh, 23 minutes, we're going to have a conversation hopefully about current culture and politics, economics, uh, from kind of a, a, I would call it a dumb and smart point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Or, or, or I would say what I think is I'm excited about about this show. It's not that you're dumb and it's not that I'm smart. It's that we both have pursued different life trajectories. So I, when I was 18, 19, 20, got really passionate about my faith and cultural topics like race, violence and poverty. And so that's kind of what like led me to pursue multiple degrees, trying to understand my own place within that story. What led me to lose my first ministry job, start a new ministry experience Mm -hmm. and has led to conflicts in other places. So that's my experience in my journey. But then I think that you bring something really fascinating into the story as a person who like has their own cultural background, but then as a person Mm -hmm. who's, like learning all of those things and then also experiencing so much of it on the ground, like as a, as a filmmaker, as an artist, like that's put you in a context where you're learning things that are actually really similar, but from a very different point of view and a different perspective. And I think also like you're a dad, you have an adult child, you have an almost adult child. And that also I think gives you something that is really different than what I have. Mm. And so it's not, again, it's not dumb versus smart. It is two different zones. Because you put me, you put me next to the Hammond that you always play, and I will look very dumb, just slamming my head against the keys. Adversely, sometimes you'll be uh, preaching or or speaking or in their podcast, and I have to rewind it like sixteen times just to figure out what you're saying. I'm like, okay, wait a minute, I, I think I'm gonna have to just like record this, Google it, and then read the articles and the references that you're referencing. So <clears throat> that's where I come from there. So if you are listening, uh, welcome to smart guy and the dumb guy and cool guy, nerd uh, guy. (laughs) And we're, and we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. The first, uh, topic I was hoping that we could chat about is that article you sent me this morning uh, from the Atlantic. Yeah. So this is actually a good, it's a good first conversation piece. 
it gets at some of the conversations that we were just having about why we want to do this show. Mm-hmm. So the piece comes from the Atlantic, and it is about France, the university structure in France, and how France has tackled its own history of race. Now, that might sound like a really abstract conversation for a show about our own culture and our own world, but I think it's actually really helpful. And also, can we put that link? Can we put that link in the in the title of the podcast so people can find oh, it? Oh yeah, in the show notes or however the internet works. Oh good, yeah. good, great. Yeah, we can definitely do that. But the I am also I'm also a bit of a um, to use a dumb word a bit of a francophile. Uh, the 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 authors that I like the the people who have been most influential to me in my doctoral research have are French authors. So what? Is yeah, yeah. So it's a very like, it's very akin to my what I'm doing right now. But the article, what it does is it looks at the Grand Ecole um, Educational Institute in France. And so Grand Ecole is basically these very elite, publicly funded universities in France. They specialize in engineering or medicine, and they're hard to get into. They're very specialized, and they're in a way kind of like the basis of French society. Sure. So that's part of the conversation, which is like, who gets into those university systems that are publicly funded? Now, the other part of that conversation, I've, I've ridden the subway when uh, one of these universities in Paris, when one of these universities kind of got out and all the students came and I was listening to the tone of their voice and see like this, that's, that's me. I'm like, Oh, you know, I've, I've traveled to over 40 countries. And so I've developed some, uh, definite preferences and biases and I was listening to them, uh, listening to the way that the tone of this of the speak. And I, I'm I'm not sure um, if this is correct, but see, this is this is where I feel just like I made these judgments. Um, I felt like it was a real elitist tone, and that's all I can say because I don't even know French. That's here. That is true of the Grand Ecole education system. They're very elitist, and this is the problem that France is experiencing, which is they have these very elite institutions. And the question that is on the table is who gets into those institutions and what kind of work does the French government do to support students of color, students of lower class structure, getting into those schools and universities. But Mm. what makes this tricky is this, that France has a dedicated policy of colorblindness. Because mainly after World War II, but really after the French Revolution, France became very progressive. It was very exciting. It was a very, like, the world has been shaped by these moments. But after the French Revolution in the 18th century, they did away with monarchical regimes and old class structures that had people as peasants and people as royalty, and everyone became a citizen, just a citizen. Mm. Then again, after World War II, in the end of the Vichy regime, which was the regime that was installed during Nazi occupation of France. Nazis are bad. Nazis are bad. Nazis are bad, and France became a, a Nazi-occupied country mm-hmm. during World War II, and so and, and under what is called the Vichy regime. And after the Vichy regime was taken away, France doubles down on this notion that everyone is a citizen. There's no color, there's no race, there's no religion. We are all citizens of a secular state. Now that sounds like a really beautiful concept. But, Pause here. Okay. Pause here. I, I, I gotta be honest. I do not like the French and I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to tell you why. Okay. And 
listen, you know, just give me a second here. So when I was 14 years old, I went to the world, the Boy Scout World Jamboree. And I was a, in this troop of about 16 uh, Boy Scouts from the United States. And we were walking down. It was in Australia, in Sydney. We are walking down the Sydney Opera House sidewalk there by the, by the ocean. And uh, a group of French Boy Scouts roll up, about 25 of them, larger group than us. And I hear, go home, you effing yank. Uh, go home. And, and um, then all of a sudden, I start feeling like liquids and... Spit, and I see them spitting, and then rocks started flying, and we all hit the ground. I got hit by a few rocks. Uh, I got just pummeled with uh, saliva and, and loogies and uh, boogers and just all kinds of gross stuff. The leaders that were with us, they were trying to scoot them away. When they left, I, I, did, I hated them when I was 14 years old. And I grew up and until gosh into my well into my 30s before i really even reconciled that story so um when i read this article it's been like really it's kind of welled up huh. those how do i process this so um now i like the french but gosh you know like <laughs> back then if for 20 years I, I didn't like the french because of that one moment where they threw rocks at me hit me in the chest and the face and spit all over me that's a i mean that is a powerful and dramatic experience it, it makes sense why it would shape your perception <laughs> like especially as a 14 year old of the entire french country it's pretty that's pretty traumatic and i and actually in some ways i don't want to say that those those french boys got speak for all of the nation but i do think it actually kind of illustrates the problem that france has is that they have this stated value of equality and colorblindness and that everyone is equal and everyone is a citizen in France. But the problem is it doesn't take into account the realities that people experience in France, that France has a long history of racism, that France has a long history of slavery and colonization all throughout West Africa and Southeast Asia and beyond. And what they're finding in this article and in France generally is that this policy of colorblindness actually masks that it is systematically more difficult for students of color and students of lower income to get into the grand decoles, these highly elite institutions. And so the very notion of France, that it's equalité, fraternity, liberté, equalité, mm-hmm. the, the, the right. motto of France is actually not institutionally or systemically true for all peoples in France. I wonder if the, um, I mean, it, it we're, they they were purporting in the article that it was really because of the the leaders of that uh, of that uh, uh, institution. Mm. Am I am I reading that right? Well, I do think yeah, that's one of the things they're talking about, which is that the the institutions are so deeply embedded in French culture and French society that it is very difficult to change them, and so you get so much opposition from the leadership of France in changing those institutions to be more accepting, to be more, um, to challenge their own like process of admission. Like France doesn't even ask a race question on the census. And so like, how do you, it's like this, it's, in, it's counterintuitive because I think in some ways, like mm. in the United States, when people talk about race, they want to talk about it in a way that's like, why can't we all just be colorblind? Why can't we not see color? And this article illustrates like, Oh, here's why here's a, here's a country mm. who is progressive, even socialist, 
that has tried to practice colorblindness, and here is where it breaks down, is that the color of people's skin has systematic implications for how they move about society. It's like when people say, all lives matter. Yeah, yeah. it misses all lives. Yeah, it's interesting. France's uh, no colorblindness is almost like a really progressive version of all lives matter, which is that we're all citizens. Because they bring people, like, they say, hey, you, you, we don't base this on the color of your skin. Uh, or, you know, it's, race isn't involved. And they have these, you know, they, they have these auditions where these oral tests, right, where they go and ask them questions and meet them and make sure they can be well-spoken on all these different things. And, and then a lot of it seems to be based on their opinions of how did it go, oh, you know, and, and how could you not, when you're hearing somebody speak, judge them on the way they speak. I mean, come on, we, you know, you, uh, we, we have that all the time. You watch Reese Witherspoon in Sweet Home Alabama and you're like, Oh, so she's so cute when she talks like that, you know, like, like that. And, and it goes the other way too, right? Yeah. It goes the, the other way. You don't sound smart when you talk like that. Yep. Oh, that's totally true. So. That's a great point. Like that is the, that is what you just named is in a nutshell, one of the root causes or one of the root, like, realities around racial structuring in the United States and in Europe. And it comes in how Western white men primarily Mm. measure intellect, education, achievement. So like you have missionaries who come to the United States before it's the United States, they start colonizing, educating indigenous communities and they do so in a Western style, right? So you're Mm going to read books, you're going to memorize things, you're going to know a bunch of facts. Indigenous communities have no history of that. They have right. a different kind of knowledge, a different kind of knowledge base. So when they don't perform those rituals well, they're considered barbaric and unintellectual. Yeah, I don't. I haven't read a, books in a long time, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'm barbaric too. No, uh, it's only because you got me started reading books again over the last like five or six years. But yes, uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, no, it's. I mean, the point is, is that like Western. The, the, this happens during the Enlightenment. We're on a huge rabbit trail, but during the Enlightenment. Knowledge becomes that which is primarily written, not oral, not experienced, Mm. not bodily. So like art, music, midwifery, um, stories, that's not intellect. Mm. Intellect is what is written. It's what's rational. It's numbers. It's calculable. It's it's mechanized. And so when indigenous communities don't meet that standard in Western pedagogy or educational formulas, they're written off. Did you just say pedagogue? Pedagogy. I I just... Pedagogy. It's like a four-syllable word. I use like one of those every week. Tori, Tori, my wife would make me put money in a in a in a jar for that. She'd make <laughs> she me put should. money in a deuce jar for that. <laughs> she, I like you said no, she should. Yeah, she should. It's true. Yeah. No, I think um, it is a very interesting article because at first, number one, I I was like I don't like the French. I don't really want to read this. Then I read it, and then uh, I was like, wow, there there is a lot of similarities on what we're going through here in the United States as of, as of late. And I don't know. I think we can learn from them. Yeah. From that, from the situation there. And I don't, I don't know if if it's just pointing out you're wrong or if it's like, Oh, we're wrong too. Mm Mm-hmm. That's why you're the smart guy. Again, you're really turning me around here. I'm starting to like the French. Even more. <laughs> well, that, was, that was not the goal of the article, but I, it's, a, it's a positive side effect. Well, that, um, that kind of is a, is a really terrible segue into uh, this, the topic of kind of bringing it back here. 
uh, learning from history or learning from someone else. Back in 1966, uh, Stephen Stills wrote a song called For What It's Worth. And we've all heard the song. It's. Um, Are you going to sing it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something happening here. That one? That's right? a, Do we know that one? I don't know. I, need, I think I need a little bit more before I know what song you're talking about. <laughs> I didn't even pull up the lyrics before we... <laughs> yeah, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear, right? There's a man with a gun over there telling me I gotta beware. Most, of, most often, or throughout history, this song has uh, been perceived as an anti-war song, and I think there are anti-war lyrics in this song, but... Stephen Stills wrote this song specifically uh, during the kind of riots or uh, this, there was this counterculture on Sunset Strip in L.A. And all of these rock and rollers were visiting clubs and they were blocking traffic. And so the city put a curfew on them, said you can't come out past 10 o'clock. And then it got to the point where even the government uh, took one of the clubs – uh, Pandora's box, it was called, and they uh, illegally acquired it and demolished it. So they, the oh. government was destroying businesses to thwart rock and rollers from hanging out. And this was a song in response to that, and it kind of made a whole uh, decade of music written by the Mama and Papas to uh, talk about protesting. And so when I hear that, and when I read about that, I, I just, I can't help but think about the stay-at-home orders and the wearing the mask, and then as well as the protests. It seems like this is, number one, happened before, happens often, and it's okay. Hmm. Hmm. It, by okay, the thing that you're naming is like, it's okay in that it's like a, people don't need to be scared or that it's a good thing? What is it that you're naming when you say it's okay? Yeah, a couple of things. It's okay that um, people are protesting. It's um, okay that the process is happening. It's not okay for people to die. It's not okay for people to get hurt. It's not okay not to have empathy. Those are the things I believe. Hmm. But it's maybe, maybe it's okay, meaning like, hey, we've... People have protested before. There have been injustices before. Let's learn from that. Let's let's uh, and maybe do something different. Or I don't know. I don't know what to do. Hmm. Like, and by do something different, you, know, you mean like, like that we as a culture should listen to what the protesters are telling us and do something different. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I agree with that. I agree with that. Do you think? So you're not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to imply that you were there in 1966, but <laughs> I you listen to this song, you would have, how old were you in the 92 riots? Um, I was, um, about 20 years old. Okay. So you've lived through a few. Several. I remember where I was during the Rodney King. Okay. Beating. I don't remember 92. I, I, I don't remember... I was really trying to promote my rock and roll career, and I was I was like boasting that I didn't know current events, right? I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't, I don't get into that stuff, man. I, I'm playing this Helen and this, I'm you know, I'm a musician, so I didn't even get into 
that the events. Okay. Okay. So, so you remember where you were, you remember those, you remember some of the events. Do you think that we have learned anything as a culture from the ones that you've like been able to watch? Gosh, you know, I, I remember when I first heard the Berlin wall Hmm. came down. I remember when the space shuttle challenger blew up. I remember Rodney King, uh, I remember the LA riots. I remember having friends there. I see the, a pattern over and over again, but in today, today, I don't think I've seen such an unprecedented and massive amount of people who are awake to doing something different. And that gives me hope. Yeah, I think, I mean, I get, I, so I was, <laughs> I was two during oh. the 92 riots. Uh, so I don't remember them, but I do think like I started seriously being engaged in issues of racial justice in when I was like 19, 18, 19, 20. That's like when it started to hit me and started to become real. And then I remember when I, pr- I preached my very first sermon on race, which is probably right about a decade ago. And I remember feeling like I was talking to a room who did not speak the same language I did. Hmm. Um, not that they were mad, but like it was just they did not understand what I was saying. Hmm. And then I remember maybe five years later doing it again. Not that that was an, the next time I preached on race, but I just remember five years later having, we did a whole big series on race with a, um, which you were there for at yeah. Missio. Yeah. And I remember the change of tone from a decade, like I guess five years before that. And then five years later, there was a change of tone. People were more engaged. People were also more mad, mad at me yeah. for teaching out race. Um, <laughs> we lost like a lot of people at that moment. Um, but there was also people who bold. cared. Yeah, that was bold. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're not, afra- you weren't afraid to say the things. <laughs> well, I mean, we tried or maybe you were be. afraid. I, that's, I mean, I think I might've been a bit ignorant too about the things like thinking that our community would receive that really well. And, they, and for the most part they did. I want to say like for the most part we received it really well, but there was like, it was like a decade ago Nobody understood what I was saying five years ago. People understood and some were mad. Um, Mm. And then doing it again this year feels again substantially different. Like it's like, oh, no, no, now, now where people are motivated there, they see it in a way they never saw it before. So I feel like just, yeah, yeah, like echoing you like, yeah, there's hope, there's change. There is a, a bending of the moral arc of people. The way you say things, uh, the bending of a moral arc. I stole Mar- that. I stole that from Martin Luther King Jr. Who would say that the, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Oh, wow. Wow. And by the way, I just looked up the 1992, right? See, this is why I am the dumb guy. This was Rodney King. Yes. Yeah. And I, and see, like I, maybe it was the, the drugs I did. Back when I was in my- <laughs> Late twenties and thirties. That's the era. Um, you know, I remember where I was when I saw um, the Rodney King rights. I was, I was actually on a Mormon mission, no longer Mormon, but 
but I was in Kansas City, uh, Missouri, and I was serving in the uh, St. Margarita Projects. And oh, wow. it was a dangerous time for white people and for missionaries. We were told to stay in and not uh, go out ever. Uh, for, you know, like, just don't go out. So we were put on like a stay-at-home order personally until the, uh, like, I don't know, it was like three weeks uh, that we stayed and then we slowly kind of made our way out. But we were constantly in the projects and in those projects, this is where Stevie Wonder grew up. It's where the Bloods and the Crips were born. Uh, Monster Cody wrote about uh, the St. Marguerite projects. This is where I was. And uh, lots of anger, but I remember we, like white people, I'm going to say me as a white people, we couldn't, I, I didn't understand why. Well, yeah, I got it. That was, that was injustice for Rodney King. Those, those police officers should be, um, but man, you're tearing up your city and you're blowing up your, you know, why are you doing that? I had no, I, I didn't, I had zero empathy, zero. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was me, you know, that was me back then. And I'm, I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of that, especially now. Hmm. But that's a good, I mean, one, I think that's like big to like name and admit, you know, you're in your twenties. Like, I don't know that a lot of us have a lot of empathy at that point, but it's also, you are a good example of what the, like the own, the hope that you named the progress that you're talking about. Like you're a good example of that. You're like here in this moment, I didn't get it. That's 92. Now we're in 2020 and I have a much better imagination and conception of what's happening. I'm totally uh, we're having good conversations and a lot of people are, are waking up. A lot of people are feeling this and doing something about it. So I don't know if we, if we answered the, the world's toughest questions tonight, but, uh, I mean, it's good talk. It was a good talk. Can I ask you, can I ask you another question about where you were? Just, yeah. just where were you when, uh, in 96 when Tupac died? Were you, were you back <laughs> in Vegas? So in 1996, yes, I was back in Vegas, and we had just, I had opened up a little studio out of the garage of my, I lived in a band house with like seven musicians and a baby, a one-year-old baby, and we purchased our CD burner, a first CD burner, single speed for $1,000. 1000 I mean, that's a lot in 96. Single speed. That's was, amazing. Was, yeah. Single speed CD burner. We waited. 74 blessed minutes to record one <laughs> CD. And now, now look at where we are. We just did this and it's going to be recorded in like seconds. Yes. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode of smart guy and a dumb guy. Come back again next week. We're, we're going to do this every week. And Hey, if you like or hate this podcast, please leave a comment. We like love mail just as much as we like hate mail. So let Probably us know more. Probably more. Probably more. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you hate this, tell us, because we want to know why you hate it. And we're <laughs> going to try to change it. Uh, anyway, share this with your friends. If you haven't uh, uh, listened to Johnny or any of his podcasts, um, <laughs> we're going to put that down in the link, too. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring current culture, politics, and economics from both sides of the intelligence spectrum. See you next time. <laughs>